Welcome to Ace Interpretations, a podcast about asexuality, fandoms, and where they intersect. I'm KK, one of your co-hosts. I'm Quartic. And I'm Love the Heaven. And today we are talking about BroTPs and QPRs. But before we get into that, we actually got an email from one of our listeners who actually posed an interesting question to us. And they were wondering if we'd be willing to discuss it a little bit. They posed the question of, is it okay to headcanon young characters as a spec? Now, they kind of posed this because they had been on Tumblr, which admittedly is kind of a crazy place right now. And they've been seeing a lot of this kind of going around. A lot of people kind of arguing the point of, you can't really headcanon young characters as a spec because they don't understand stuff yet. And other people, of course, making the argument of some people realize their se- sexuality at a young age. It's just something that happens. Yeah, I'm I'm personally of the opinion that you can headcanon young characters as a spec. Um, it isn't that different from headcanoning someone who's 12 or 13 as heterosexual. Like, for whatever reason, we're fine. And we understand, like, oh... You know, little little kids, you know, seven or eight, you know, and they, they say, like, oh, I've got a girlfriend or a boyfriend, and the adults around them will just think, oh, how cute or how sweet, and none of them think any kind of hanky-panky is going on. You know, none of them think that these kids have any clue what sexuality or uh, what sex is, but they understand having a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Yeah, it's kind of the conflation of romantic orientation and sexual orientation in most people, um, where maybe the romantic orientation kind of blossoms a little bit earlier for some of these kids. And so that's the innocent beginning of having crushes, having interest in having a partner of some kind, a boyfriend, a girlfriend. Um, but the interesting thing about this email question was that they considered this person said that they realized they were ace when they were only 13 or 14 years old and they're 29 now. So they know like they're still ace. It wasn't like they were wrong back then, but their example was kind of like, you know, wouldn't it be okay to have a 13 year old character be headcanoned as asexual? And that's not as young as I thought maybe some of the questions might be. Cause one of the interesting things about asexuality as an orientation is it's kind of the null hypothesis. Even before you're pubescent, even before adolescence, you're not, you know, asexuality is not exactly incompatible with very young kids in terms of descriptiveness. It's this weird, that's the part that gets complicated. So a lot of people are arguing that they just haven't figured out their actual orientation yet. If they're, I guess, 13 or something, they're going to become gay, bi, straight, and so it's too early to say they're asexual or something, right? Like, there's some of that nuance in there. Well, yeah, and that's a good point, admittedly. Yeah, like, well, this might be uh, sort of just like a personal anecdote. Like, the way I, I learned about sex, right? The way I got to talk. I was sort of young, so I thought I was confused because of how I'd first gotten the talk, and it kind of made me think, oh, sex, that sounds really unpleasant. I don't want anything to do with that. And I was like nine years old at the time. And then this impression just stuck with me for years and years. Like, oh, sex. Yeah, that's still really unpleasant. And then I'm like, you know, 14, 15, like, 
yeah, no, my impression of sex is still like, why would you? Um, and then I got to sort of questioning it, and it was like, is did I just form an opinion too early and somehow repress myself, and that if I'd had a more positive opinion of sex, you know, when I was in fourth grade? Oh, so the reason why is, like, I have an older sister, right? And so she hit that point in school where she was being taken aside into the auditorium and being given a talk, and then she comes home with, like, pamphlets or what have you. Um, and then I had some questions, because I'm like, huh? And my mom's very, like, sure, kid has questions, answer the questions. So then she pulled me aside, you know, and had, like, this book of pregnancy, and I was just like, oh, no, thank you. Um, and just that, that ended the curiosity for me. And then I, I did wonder, like, oh, was I just not curious enough? Was I, yeah, kind of off topic. <laughs> Sorry. No, but you do make a good point of, by the way, if any parents are listening and you want to dissuade your children from sex, show them the pregnancy books. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I think the point is more, it's confusing. Like, explain how, you know, you were young and how that, that ties into the well, topic. Well, that's true. And, and were... like, that makes a good point of, again, when you're young, it's true. You're, you're learning and you're experiencing everything and you don't know. That he... Yeah, well, Cordic, what were you going to say? Yeah, I was saying, because to this day, I don't know if that reaction that I had was because I was fundamentally asexual or if I was just nine years old. Right, you know? right. And because, like, at that age, there are, like, oh, cooties and oh, that, you know, it's like, oh, kissing, gross. Like, I see the ki- the faces real young kids make when the topic of kissing comes up. Uh, and it's like, I will never know the answer to that question. But, uh, like, Love the Heaven says, they're not mutually exclusive like i probably was ace and also i was a kid (laughs) it's true but here's the other bit i mean okay so this fan did put in that they were talking about kids more around the 13 14 age which is when a lot of people do start kind of figuring stuff out we'll phrase it that way yeah I, i would i would say once you're 11 or 12 that's when you start to develop whatever your orientation is going to be it might be subtle but you they've done studies and first signs of sexual attraction, having crushes, those things. You're getting puberty usually. They happen right around that age. It's not, by the time 13 and 14 rolls around, that's not too young. But yeah, so, I mean, that happens. And plus, I can remember being 14, and that's around the time where I start being like, boys can be cute. Girls are also cute. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. (laughs) I have this now, this new conundrum of, hmm, both are cute. Both are lovely. Hmm. What am I learning here? So I do think that it's perfectly okay to headcanon like 13, 14 as being on the A spectrum or being aromantic because chances are that, well, it could be that they're just still young and still figuring it out. There's also the chance that they're in that place where they've kind of already pieced it together. They may not have a name for it yet, maybe not the vocab, but... It's already kind of taking place. Yeah. And there are um, people who have reported basically as long as they can remember since they were like five years old, knowing they never wanted to get married and never wanted to have kids. And a lot of those people that talk about this are identify as adults, as aromantic asexuals, aeroaces. These people, now that's not every aeroaces experience, but there are some people that know the long before puberty that they had these like inklings of their orientation, which 
also applies to people in other orientations. So this is a very complex subject, I think, but... It is. It's not as simple as just, can you, can't you? It's, it comes down to you. But I do think it comes down to just, like, headcanning anything. People have different ships for characters that, like, met this one time. People have all kinds of different headcanons. I don't think it's harmful to have ones that say a teenager happens to be on the ace spectrum. That seems pretty safe to me. Yeah, I think, ultimately, if you can recognize that a teenager, a young teenager can be gay or a young teenager can be straight, there's no reason you can't think a young teenager can't be ace. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Yes. And I think it was great that, like, the Fosters decided to let a 12-year-old boy um, have a crush on another boy, and that was record-breaking young age for television. You know, I I think it's good to allow characters to be young and figuring out they're gay, and I equally think one day if I read a book where a 13, 14-year-old was figuring out they were ace, I'd be like, yeah, this makes sense, this is good. I wouldn't be like, ah, it's too young. That would be canon, not just a headcanon, and I would be all for it. Like, you know, whatever. Those types of things are good. They're probably already out there. There's so many books these days. There's, um, And I really think it's a good thing. The other thing I wanted to add, though, was, of course, for headcanons, when you're, we had a whole episode on headcanons, I think it's okay to headcanon whatever character you want as a serial killer. Like, what's what's this okay to headcanon thing? I mean, no, it's not okay to be a serial killer. It's okay to headcanon certain characters where there's nothing that disproves they're not a serial killer. You know, you know what I'm saying here? Or secretly a raccoon. I had that headcanon. <laughs> yes, that's true. We did talk about that. Or the bird people. I'm just exactly. saying, like, the, the, on our show, our opinions, why in the world would you be policing what people can headcanon? This is a fandom fun space, and the whole point I of know. headcanons is exploration of what-ifs, and it's not about, like, you know, actually saying much of anything else. <laughs> Not to mention, I forget if I mentioned this, but again, I love what headcanning creates. Because again, you get these fabulous writers and artists who then, they take this wonderful thing that they've kind of fallen in love with and devoted energy to, and they make something beautiful out of it. They can create new worlds, new art, and it's wonderful. So no, don't put down headcanons. Yes. Okay. They create beautiful things, you leave them be. So help me. All right. So I think we've covered this question that was a little off topic, but we wanted to cover it because we weren't sure when the topic would get to that on our show. And uh, <laughs> and frankly, I mean, they were nice enough to ask. Yeah, we really appreciate you reaching out to us via email and Twitter and stuff. And um, so... And we're, we like hearing from you. And we like discussing this kind of stuff. We, we have thoughts on the topic. So it's, it's fun to be able to share our thoughts. <laughs> um, Hooray! And the next thing we wanted to mention real quick before we dive into the real topic was... Um, there's a community on DreamWith, um, you know, that site, Dream, W-I-D-T-H, um, yeah. where it's uh, asexual-fandom or asexual-underscore-fandom. It's depending on if you're looking at the URL or the actual name of the community. But um, this community has existed for a very, very long time. Um, and, you know, DreamWith is kind of an old site. But with some of the... Uh, we're not really 100% sure all the reasons why, but it started to have a um, influx of new activity around uh, December of 2018. So now there's a bunch of people talking about, you know, being asexual in fandom on a DreamWith com- community. So if you want to go to this DreamWith community, we'll link to it in our Archive of Our Own page. And I, I recommend you check it out. There were even people talking about uh, queer platonic relationships, which will come up in our uh, episode today, and various other things in their introductory posts talking about fan fictions they've written 
that are, you know, have asexual characters and all that stuff. It's, it's, we just wanted to announce it as a relevant to people who are interested in asexuality and fandom kind of thing. Yes. And also I would like to say again, I am so sorry about what's happening on Tumblr right now. <laughs> it's terrifying. Yeah. There's a, we didn't really uh, address that much on our show, but maybe for another episode. <laughs> Another day we'll cover that issue. <laughs> I, but, I don't. Yeah. Uh, or we might not really address it fully ever because I'm not sure we ever want to, I'm but we, we might touch of, on it here and there yeah, in the future. I kind of want to see how it shakes out because it's still shaking out. It is very much so. <laughs> I think yeah. either. I mainly know because I go on there for my cute dog photos and they're not there. Right. So the no, reason I mean, this is relevant is because the Dream With community might be getting a lot more activity because people are um, abandoning Tumblr. Um, so that was sort of one of the theories, um, <laughs> that people are jumping ship from Tumblr to back to the old platforms like Dreamwith. Anyway, uh, Quartic, how about well, you now talk- Well, leave that and go on to our real topic. <laughs> yeah, let's do that. <laughs> All right. So we're going to start by breaking down these acronyms. So BroTP is actually like, it's a portmanteau of bro, uh, short for bromance, and then OTP, which stands for one true pairing. QPR, on the other hand, stands for queer platonic relationship. Um, before we go any further, we're just going to want to break down platonic a little bit and really firm up what we mean when we use the word platonic in this context. Yeah, yeah. So if this was like children's show, we would have cue cards right now. <laughs> so basically, um, in the dictionary, platonic is a word that kind of means intimate and affectionate, but not sexual. But for anyone who's been involved in the ace or aromantic communities for any period of time, you might notice that we kind of use the word platonic differently. We've basically shifted how the word um, gets used in everyday language. Basically, it means intimate and affectionate, but not romantic. And we allow relationships that have sex but not romance to be count as platonic in both of these communities and we allow celibate romances to not count as platonic for asexual people and i'm not sure if that was clear but basically we like that terminology we needed a word for it doesn't involve romance because we can already say non-sexual we can already say without sex we didn't have any words for the absence of romance. Yeah. Um, one of, one of my friends actually said that, you know, how did we end up with contradictory uses of the same word? It's actually likely that maybe because society at large tends to see romance and sex as two sides of the same coin, one doesn't really exist without the other, that the way people tended to be using it, while the dictionary says it's intimate but not sexual, what it, in practice, the way people ha sort of were using it, was intimate but not romantic, kind of. Like, this is a deep relationship, but obviously there's no romantic undertones. Or And romantic and sexual were kind of in the same thought when people said that or something. Yeah. Like, we needed a way to di differentiate the people who feel like they can tell when something's romantic and yet still not sexual and something that's really is simply friendship, but still deep and just not romantic – and platonic ended up filling that gap for us naturally without us trying, without us realizing it might cause confusion. Yeah. Even. Additionally, but additionally, <laughs> um, one of the reasons why we don't just say not romantic is that that has a very, it has a different connotation. It has a different meaning. In English, 
the way we use negatives and double negatives, uh, I think it's sort of a good illustration of this point. If you say someone is not unhappy, that has a different meaning than saying they're happy. So saying something is not romantic doesn't really give you much description for what it is. Uh, the way that platonic is a thing that can be described on its own merits. It's like, okay, that it's the, to say something is not romantic and to say something is platonic, they're not exact synonyms. Right. Yeah, there's this connotation of like distancing it from romance versus just embracing what it really is. That it's a platonic thing, but it's still a it's a, it's a thing. It's a, it's intimate. It means something like you know. Part of the definition is it has some kind of intimate, affectionate, you know, feelings between the the people in this relationship. They just happen to be of a different characterization. Yeah. Not to mention, the English language is just constantly evolving in ever weirder ways. If we're being honest. Yeah. Yeah. And one thing to note, actually, is of course. Um, we're all native English speakers here. There are probably very interesting um, nuances to how people will end up translating some of these words that have these tricky definitions into their own native languages. You know, how, how this ends up playing out in other cultures when they don't have the exact same words for differentiating platonic relationships, romantic relationships, sexual relationships, everything in between, when when for them, words don't fall apart in the same exact spots. That, that ends up, you know, being its own interesting, complicated situation. And now I'm going to be thinking about that. Alas, that we are not a linguistics podcast. Yes. <laughs> so true. What a missed opportunity. <laughs> so we should talk about, you know, our two acronyms that we briefly defined that are the whole topic of this episode. Bro TPs. So we were going to define bromance. Kordic, do you want to explain some of that? So speaking of linguistics, I was curious about when exactly did bromance enter common usage? Because in preparing for this episode, I was thinking, I know that I've seen bromance used outside of fandom spaces. And I was because there's some words that we use in fandom uh, that are now like part of my my lexicon, part of my everyday usage. There's different words that are used in different spaces, and I was like, I know bromance. I know shows somewhere, you know, like some character has mentioned bromance within the show itself. It's not just people talking about the show using the term bromance. But I wasn't sure when that started, and I really miss having a subscription to the Oxford English Dictionary, uh, because they just give you, like, first appearance in print. It's wonderful. But I did find a, an article that's sort of looking at it and actually didn't really become a term that uh, particularly Americans were using until late 2008, early 2009. Uh, and bromance started in, uh, was it, oh, either skateboarding magazine or surfing magazine. Let me see. Um, oh yeah, Surf World. <laughs> uh, the earliest one found by the OED is in April 2001 of Surf, Trans World Surf. Like, earliest recorded use of the word romance. Uh, didn't really catch on until 2008, 2009, and then, like, everybody was using it. Now, it's an understood word. So, what is romance? 
it is itself a portmanteau of bro uh, and romance. And the idea was it describes a close, non-sexual uh, relationship between two men. I don't want to go on too long, and because like I could keep going. So someone else take the reins, please. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So bro is related to brothers, right? You know, the idea is how you know. Obviously, if you're literally family in that brother sense, that's very clearly not a romance. And so combining somewhere in the middle of a romance and a very much non-sexual, non-romantic relationship, like a, like a family member who would be like totally different, super platonic feelings that, and you, and you push them together into this word that's combining them both that slips off the tongue easily. And you say it's a bromance and it's kind of got this uh, connotation. That's like, it's kind of a joke. It's kind of funny. It's kind of silly. It's not like a term that people are taking too seriously whenever they use it, you know? True. Right? Yeah. They're that's like, oh, they'll they might somewhat sort of like, oh, the most epic bromance, but nobody is sitting in a cafe being all moody and dreamy over like, oh man, I just really want a bromance. A bromance <laughs> no in one my does life. That. When will my bro come and sweep me off you know? Um, well, you know, if anyone does do that, it's uh, someone in the asexual or aromantic community. Um, true, and, and in that case... That's kind of the point of this yeah. episode. <laughs> I would love to know your story. Yeah, no, it's interesting. <laughs> One of the best examples of, like, a classic bromance stereotype, I think, is the movie I Love You, Man. It has Paul Rudd in it, and it literally is just, like, two guys becoming super close friends throughout the entire movie. It is hysterical. I really wish I'd finished watching that movie because I knew I would love it. You for whatever should. reason, I watched like the first half of it. And it's so like, it hit too close to home. The guy's like about to get married. He has like no one to be his best man. And he needs, he needs like to get a friend. It's he like the weird, <laughs> it's the most ridiculous premise. It's like, it's like, oh yeah, I have no platonic relationships in my life. Let's, let's find one. Well, the <laughs> so whole point is that he has no male friends. It's like, he's, he's always friends like all the women oh, yeah, in the room. All of this. He has no male friends. Yeah. Except for, like, his gay brother, I think. So, <laughs> right. So it's very heterosexual, um, male-centric in what a bromance is and how and why, and why how you would need one and all that stuff. Yeah. yeah I um, think they basically yeah, bond a, over rock and roll and stuff. But, yeah, it was a 2009 movie, and it helped, I think, bring the concept of bromances to a new well, level in American public cult consciousness. Yeah, definitely. I think, though, part of it is that it gave us a word to a concept that's actually been around for a long time. Uh, and that helped people yeah. talk about it more easily. Cause you, you can find examples of these sort of close relationships between two guys going back, you know, Sherlock Holmes and, you know, John Watson. Um, you know, you look at the odd couple with Felix and Oscar, you look at, um, I'm not, well read enough to continue this list of examples but <laughs> i'm trying to find older examples say, you know also, things guys have friends can we just put that out there i'm sorry men have friends they have friends to go get coffee with and stuff it happens can we please just make that the norm men can have friends that get brunch with too <laughs> yeah it's normal for everyone of every gender to have friends <laughs> yeah. well now we're gonna now we're gonna yeah. start touching Ta- uh, this will touch on toxic masculinity and 
you know, why the barriers to men showing affection to each other. But I think before we get into that, we should talk about QPRs. One thing I thought I could bring up um, is that there was a term in um, of romantic friendship before there was bromances that I think covers some of what you're trying to grasp for examples at. Just the idea of, you know, usually men, I think, that people would discover this between, you know, that had like written deep letters to each other that might have done certain um, displays of affection. I don't know. It, it was it was basically it was still non-sexual as far as anyone was aware. I don't know what I'm saying, but it was definitely relevant a little bit. <laughs> Mildly. Go ahead and talk about QPRs. Who me? I mean, you had the definition. Um, I think if love the heaven, because you've been in a queer platonic relationship. You're good at introducing. I can just jump in. Okay, so, right. Talk about QPRs. So, queer platonic came about, and I unfortunately did not think to look up the etymology of this term. I can do it now. Uh, I think it's a bit more modern than bromance. I mean, oh gosh. I just referred to 2009 as not being modern. Uh, That's a problem. That's a problem. (laughs) Can we all just take a moment to look at our lives and our choices? Uh, Okay. So QPR, it was the idea, this evolved in the Ace Nero communities as a way of queering platonic relationships, because this kind of goes back to what you are saying earlier about how the way we use platonic kind of differs from the way platonic is used in like common parlance and so talking about like oh we wanted platonic relationships but then we didn't want it to be because i have for example i have a lot of platonic relationships in my life um i would go so far as to say all the relationships i have in my life are platonic because i am not in a romantic or sexual relationship with anybody but the degree to which I'm in a platonic relationship with someone I shared chemistry notes with five years ago is different from like the platonic relationship I have with like close friends uh, is different from a platonic relationship that I might have with like one significant other. So the QPR is kind of, and again, we don't want to go back to that that hierarchy of saying the next level, where it's like more than friendship, because we've already broken that down. Why that's a problem? Uh, but a queer platonic is its own animal. It's a horse of a different color. It is separate from just being. Ah, uh, see, I gotta watch my words again. Uh, it is in some way other than a platonic relationship. Uh, usually. If two people decide, let's be QPRs, let's be queer platonic partners, it is monogamous to some extent. Like, it might be an open relationship, there might be more people involved, but if so, those things would be communicated. You could be polyamorous and queer platonic, too. It's just like like the structures of romantic relationships with all the But in a good polyamorous relationship, you are open about the fact that the relationship is open. And the fact that you're polyamorous. Yes. Um, right. Communication. So so queer platonic was coined um, eight years ago, 
around um, December 2010 on a thread on Dreamwith for for historical purposes and caught on enough that it was being used in like real publications, certain like, you know, academic papers or something around 2012. But this is like less than a less than a decade old terminology, but almost a whole decade old terminology. So it's actually spanned pretty far and lasted. And it's a word that a lot of people, especially in the ace and arrow communities, really have latched onto and are using now. There are many, many people who have in real life been in queer platonic relationships. Some people don't like the word queer for the relationship and prefer things like quasi platonic relationship. So one of the things that's cool about the acronym QPR is that it still works for either one, depending, you know, regardless of what other terminology you're using. It works whether you spell it uh, with a space between queer and platonic or not, all that stuff. But I think the most common way that I see it is queer platonic as one word, and then relationship as another one. And you can also say queer platonic partner as the uh, equivalent of boyfriend, girlfriend, significant other type of thing. Um, there's other things you can do in that sense. Um, but, um, yeah, I think which like the whole idea of a partner is like queer platonic relationship or queer platonic partner connotes a certain level of commitment, um, that you don't see in other relationships. Yeah. Yeah. And I actually, I've had people just use platonic relationship if they're just people who are just like, we're in a relationship together, but we're just, just that. Just what? Just in a relationship together. They're not doing anything sexual. It's just, we are like, we are each other's best friends. And while we're not integrated that way, like they're together, together. They're each other's emotional support. They're there for each other thick and thin. They move in together. They do all that kind of stuff. Are you saying that you've heard people say platonic without the word queer in front of it? Yeah. Right. So I think there's this thing of like platonic life partners, people who maybe think the terminology of queer platonic is too um, technical, too in-community jargon, and when talking to other people or when writing it into a Sherlock fanfiction or whatever, they might avoid the specific phrasing of queer platonic Mm -hmm. relationship, but they are... You know, it's very much uh, possible to have various, you know, other terminology used to describe the same um, phenomenon. Yeah. Yeah. So I think one of the biggest things that um, is hard about defining queer platonic relationships um, is that the, the actual point, the whole reason they were coined, the whole, the whole, and the whole idea that we want, that most of the people in the community want to keep promoting forward is a lack of of rules is to be able to fit the things that don't fit in the other boxes into here. It's supposed to be an umbrella term for a bunch of different types of relationships that might be actually completely contradictory. And it's not, there's not one easy definition of what makes a relationship queer platonic. One of the things that really um, helps is that the people inside of it agree. They have probably a conversation. They decided it was queer platonic. They, They feel like it is. You have you, you now when it comes to fandom, um, it's a little more complicated. We're, we're kind of foisting this on characters for them without their consent. Um, <laughs> but there uh, def- <laughs> there are definitely some weird lines in that one. <laughs> yeah, when you're when you're like, here are these two characters. They definitely live together. 
Right. So ideally, you'd basically imagine a what if scenario in their head where in your head where they might have had this conversation or they are about to have this conversation. <laughs> and yeah. they are, you know, where, where the way they're pl- queer platonic is because if they were to talk about it in my headcanon of the characterization, they would have agreed. Yeah. Yeah. We're platonic life partners. Yeah. We're this or that, you know, and there's different ways it works. You don't have to necessarily have commitment if you have all these other factors, but most people think there's some, you know, it, it often has, um, basically there's a bunch of things in the uh, equation, a bunch of things in the recipe that go into usually romantic relationships. We're talking about cuddling, emotional intimacy, knowing all each other's secrets, living together, possibly being doing a, laundry, em- right. Doing laundry together, being a emergency contact person, the, the next of kin, the person you put on your forms when you're an adult, you that know, really being <laughs> all these things, even, even thinking you're the number one person in my life, best friend, that often is reserved for romantic relationships in many people's lives. And there's so many things that go into that equation. And if you pull out a couple of those and add it to a friendship instead of to a romance, the friendship has now become queered in this verb usage of the word queer. The friendship is now changed from what traditional friendships often are. And it doesn't really matter which factors you pulled out, whether it was even the sex. You know, these friends are having regular sex, but they still think of themselves as just friends, you know, as as not necessarily just friends, but as a type of friendship, uh, uh, you know, they, as friends and not a romance. So these might consider themselves, well, you know, friends with benefits, buddies, I don't know, they might consider themselves um, queer platonic partners because they are regular sexual partners who are platonic and they want a word for it. And that's 100% opposite from certain asexual people who maybe are sex repulsed and entered a queer platonic relationship. It's completely opposite type of relationship, but they're both queer platonic relationships. If you got the people who are um, raising kids together sleeping in separate beds, living in the same house, living their lives as committed partners in a very platonic but committed way, and the other people who are like, you you know what I'm saying here? Yeah, yeah, we got you. Yeah, I totally get what you're saying. Again, there's a lot of different, it's a giant spectrum, which is what all of this is. I think a common question directed towards QPRs is like, well, how is that any different from a romance? And I honestly don't feel super equipped to answer that because I don't really understand what romantic attraction is. It's not something I've ever experienced. So it just throws up a lot of question marks in my head. I'm like, I I could try to explain the difference, but I don't know that I would succeed. I mean, honestly, even if you take queer platonic relationships out of the equation and you ask what's the difference between a friendship and a celibate romance when it comes to, you know, that there's no real perfect answer. There's just not, there's no easy way to answer that other than, well, people say they know it when they feel it. People, people can tell people inside of these relationships. know it's different than a friendship in the cases when it is. And the same is true and vice versa. People in the queer platonic relationships that look a lot like a romance, they have this intuitive 
deep down feeling at least one of the partners usually it's possible that the other partner feels romantic things but they've agreed to call it queer platonic because at least one of the partners just feels like i don't have romantic feelings all of my feelings these are the same category of feelings i have for my friends it's just with more commitment or in this case with more intimacy or maybe even deeper but it's still platonic to me i just know i just feel it and there's no real good answer other than that i think that's how it that's out how it shakes out yeah i think i'm reminded actually and i don't know where and i probably won't be able to find a link but it was looking at like a neuroscience origin for romantic attraction um and kind of figuring out evolutionarily where uh romantic bonds might have evolved from uh because humans are a social species uh, and we come from, like, we're descended from non-social, like, mammals, like, cause mammals weren't always social, and like, being social is really ingrained in human DNA. And what the paper found was that, like, sexual attraction is from the part of our brain that's sort of colloquially known as, like, the lizard hindbrain. And this makes a lot of sense, uh, because, like, the drive to procreate goes back way, 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 way far in, in evolutionary history, uh, and that romantic attraction being a much newer development doesn't come from the same place. Uh, that it actually comes from, and don't, don't, don't get all Oedipus on me, um, <laughs> from the, the bond between mother and child. Okay, and I'm not saying <laughs> this does not suggest that no, but this is just because it's hormones and it's brains and they're all really complicated. Um, but I would say that does sound about right for brains and yeah, hormones. I would say if some neuroscientist out there who isn't me, probably more of them, not just one. There, there, there are people who are studying romance in a very brainy way, um, and that if that that suggests to me that there is in fact something to be studied right um they're not chasing leprechauns here there is something in human behavior that is classified as romance um consistently enough that people can study it uh and and i don't know where i'm going with this i would then suggest i guess that it would then be possible and we know it's possible because we see it but that like a queer platonic relationship would be a really close relationship that doesn't have this element of this other part you know this part of the brain or whatever the hormones or whatever that is that is the romance thing that i still don't understand because again i'm approaching this from like an evolutionary biology perspective which tells you how much i understand romance (laughs) no but that also makes sense because romance is supposed to go through different stages as well i mean there's the early on stage where like you get the butterflies oh. as they call them oh, in yeah, your yeah, stomach yeah. and you're like you're always excited to see them and then it evolves into like a more comfortable thing is it like is it like limerence yes, that is the, the word yeah i believe it's called limerence. i was about to bring it up i think it's supposed <laughs> to last like three years you get that like three years tops yeah, yeah. <laughs> heads up there romantic relationships yeah like we'll, we'll link to a page on limerence in our in our archive of our own uh links page yeah, but the point being that there's already recent data stating that romance evolves, romantic relationships evolve, because, I, I mean, it just to me, it makes sense, because that's like the nature of things, to grow and change and be affected by everything that's going on. 
Yeah, I mean, I think one of the ways a lot of people describe queer platonic relationships is that you've, like, skipped to the old married couple stage without the, the early, uh, <laughs> without, without the first stage of the romance. Like, a, a, a lot of people think that basically a lot of old married couples, you know, obviously not all of them, sort of are into this familial, deep, almost platonic seeming bond, but they don't really have that spark of romance anymore. But it's still this comfortable, we're family, we're, we're kind of everything to each other relationship. It's not like devaluing what they have. It's just a different characterization of it or something. Like, does that make any sense? Yeah. And again, that's the whole point. Yeah. After 30 years of marriage, you don't love each other any less, but you also the the amount of romance in the in the relationship might have shifted. You're comfortable. That's the difference. Is that early on we feel this great pressure to like throw everything out there and you know prove a point and do all of this. Well, I don't want to. Once you're at a certain point, I think you can just kind of relax. I don't want to throw aloromantic people under the bus and say that they're all uncomfortable. Sucks to be you. You romantic it's people? Also... I'm not saying you're that. I'm not actually meaning that you're uncomfortable. <laughs> I'm just meaning the words like, it's a different stage. Well, the other thing, though, is that I think a new friendship, even even if it's like a purely platonic relationship, sometimes new friendships can be really exciting. It's not as, com- it can be nerve wracking. It can be all the things, not all the things necessarily, but a lot of the things that a romantic relationship can be as well. I don't think it's, um, it's purely easy and comfortable, you know, all these, uh, aromantic people trying to find queer platonic relationships still have a dating process to go through. Um, and there's a lot of nuance here. And I think it's, it doesn't really like there's, I really liked the one blog post I saw a while ago on like friendship flirting, like, you know, finding the right time when you have a new potential friend to, you know, try to sit in the chair next to them so that you can talk to them more, try to see, should we exchange phone numbers? But it's all purely, platonic you know you're not aiming for anything more than a friendship as your end goal it's just it's still kind of like almost like flirting like you know that kind of thing um there there's not really an easy way to just differentiate all this stuff everything has so many overlaps between what we do for friendships and what we do for romantic relationships i think for the record it gets especially foggy if you're one of those people that's like I want to be friends with the person I end up with. Right. You're demisexual. You put yourself in a really weird situation. Because <laughs> everything starts as friendship. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I am seeking a platonic <laughs> relationship, and you're demisexual, where I think you would have to be close, you know, in a platonic way, probably, before you start to fall for them. Is that accurate? It It is. It's... <sighs> There's a comfort zone sort of thing. It doesn't just happen. I actually was talking to a friend of mine who is not on the A spectrum at all once because I was curious. And so, of course, I was poking his brain to kind of see, like, you know, like how does that, like, work for you? Where you can, like, walk into a place, like, see a person and just be like, I'd hit that. <laughs> First off, he was like, that actually is basically how it works. And I was just like... I'm pretty sure it's, I feel like there should be more complexity there, but go ahead, go ahead with your speech. And he was basically saying, it was like, he doesn't totally understand, like, how that works. But yeah, like, there are people that, like, 
at least to him, like, he sees them, and it's, like, automatic attraction. There is just, like, a moment, or whatever it is they call it in romance movies. A connection, that's it. <laughs> and it's just, like, automatically there, like, I saw her across the room, and she looked gorgeous. And again, for me, I he was then asking me the same questions, and I was like, that never happens like that. No, I like, do I might think, see a I, person... I do think there are aces who would feel that with aesthetic attraction, and... Well, yeah, that was my point to him, was that I can see a person, I can be like, well, gosh darn it, she's gorgeous. But I don't then feel the need of, like, I have to hit that. Right. You know? Yeah, and so you are demisexual, and occasionally, after... Like, explain when you do, or if, how, how you, why you identify as demisexual. Like, I identify as demisexual, and I think I did mention this before, which is because, um, for me, again, there is no instant point of sexual attraction. That doesn't necessarily happen. For me, it comes down to, I get to know a person, um, and there's not really any definition for, like, how long it takes or exactly, like, the two-week mark I'm comfortable with you or the three-month mark is when it happens. For each person, it's different. And there's just a point where you're connected to that person, where that becomes a level of, I want to get to know them on that level, too. But before that, there's diddly squat. <laughs> There's bubkiss. Yeah, yeah. It's like a barren wasteland. Cool. That's the best way I can describe it. It's like there's literally nothing. It's like looking out on an open field and you're like, oh, that is a field. I was thinking we've we've covered UPRs pretty comprehensively, and I was wondering if we should get back to that toxic masculinity we mentioned earlier. I think it's relevant to bromances, so yeah. All right. Yeah. Uh, so also, I have a lot of words on this one. <laughs> <laughs> so we mentioned earlier like that bromance is between two guys, uh, and I will note in fandom spaces I have seen bromance applied to I don't want to say heterosexual uh, guys and girls. Well, have you seen bromance or bro TP? Bromance, really? Okay. Fairly short. All right. I've seen bro TP is applied to male female friendships. And That's maybe the word I'm looking for. And, and female female friendships. Um, yeah, it's it bothered me for a long time. It still kind of does. I don't like it. I, Can't we I, find I do. A different term. Well, because one of my favorite, so one of my favorite tags in the Marvel fandom is Natasha is a good bro. Um, <laughs> and so this kind okay. of degendering of bro even though it's short for brother and it is kind of an inherently male masculine term i think we can still apply it uniformly because the ideas behind it you know there isn't a good female equivalent so why can't we just make bro be more gender neutral um like they don't don't have a monopoly on this idea of like being a bro well, we keep using the word without defining uh, this connotation that you think being a bro uh, yeah. captures. Okay. Yeah, and then I think that really then gets by frat guys. It does get complicated. So, like, wait, 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 KK, can you say that again? I said I feel like it mainly got started in kind of the connotation she's using it, where it's like you're my bro, like a frat guy. You said. Yeah, I said I feel like to me, I'm like I feel like frat guys really made it what it is. Yeah, where it's like you're my bro. Right. Yeah. It's not, in the, it's not really the familial 
connotation because I don't know about you guys, but I've never called my brother bro. Unless right. I'm like sarcastically being like, bro. Yeah, so like Keanu Reeves voice style. The definition I have in front of me says a commonly used abbreviation of brother used among male friends. Um, you are right that there are certainly uh, other very specific uses of bro that have their own content. I think like a dude bro is a different kind of word that is more specific. Like that's kind of like so. And again, I could that's be a little more surfery. I could be completely wrong. Right. So it it evolved because the bro of the surfer world kind of caught on and more people were using bro. And then like dude, bro had to come in usually with a negative connotation. Like what you're talking about, like those sprat guys. Like if I saw like a Tumblr post or something and it would be probably people complaining about dude bros and like, Oh, the dude bro is like the hyper masculine, uh, misogynistic, uh, annoying, obnoxious dude bro, you know, and dude bro culture which is, like, kind of more specific than the more general bro, which I think really has become super general. So you think I should describe what a bro is? Because I've just been throwing this word around a lot. You kept you kept saying bro like we all know what it means. And to be honest, I think the whole reason I was uncomfortable with seeing male and female friendship, you know, like a male and a female together in one friendship of two people being called a bro TP is because I don't think of bro with the same connotation that you had started thinking of bro. Like, it, it feels too, uh, you know, acting like the woman is a guy to me. And I okay. feel like, you know, I like uh, my womanhood enough that I don't like that. And Like, I don't know. Right, right. And I am, like... <laughs> An interesting point. Really not oblivious to gender, but I have, like, no relationship with gender. Um... <laughs> Like, I have it on good authority that gender is a thing that exists. It's not something I experience personally. So for right, me, right. the degendering of bro is just like, yeah, no, that's more equality for everybody. Everyone can be a bro. Um, I like the way that I personally had seen it used in like the Marvel fandom, where it's like, anyone can be a bro. It's like a word for a really close friend. Or even just Yeah, and admittedly, I use the word dude in a similar fashion. To me, it doesn't have a gender, it's just, like, an expression. Yeah. So, I think, for me, when I see bro-TPs between, that have, that have like, male-female friendship, I'm like, oh, that's cool, that's a cool use. Uh, slight, I mean, it's kind of talking about, like, queering, use queering as a verb. Like, now we're queering the term bro. <laughs> Bromance. It's kind of true, it's kind of true. It's, it's fair enough. Um, yeah. And so, like, yeah, I don't think, within fandom spaces, at least, you can use bromance. Um, right. I mean, one anybody. thing that's good about having a degendered word is that we need a neutral sibling weird term for the non-binary characters. And if we just use bro TP for everyone, then it includes uh, even the people who aren't male or female, um, including characters you only headcanon as non-binary. That's still fine. They're still non-binary in the work of the fan work that you're, you're dealing with. Um, you so, see how we brought it all back there, <laughs> but it's, it's, there's a lot of stuff that's, uh, yeah. So one of the things that's actually interesting about this whole bro TP can apply to, um, any gender now in a lot of places thing, um, is that queer platonic can also apply to relationships of any gender. I, we didn't actually specify, but you can be a guy and a girl who you know, from the outside, that would be a heterosexual-seeming romance 
or something, or male-female friendship at least. But no, that can still be a queer platonic relationship. That's actually the kind of queer platonic relationship I was in on and off for a while. Um, I don't even know how long I dated. Um, dated is a weird term that I, I guess I use for my queer platonic relationship. Um, but yeah, I was, I'm a, I'm a woman and I was in a queer platonic relationship with a guy. And I think because we were both ace and because he was gray, asexual towards the, um, attracted to men in his gray asexuality, that it was very much, uh, you know, a queer platonic relationship. We had no attraction for each other. I'm, I'm on the side of being gray aromantic and basically, uh, it was very platonic between us. I felt from both of our ends, it was platonic. It doesn't matter that we were a guy and a girl. We were still in a queer platonic relationship. And I do know people argue that you shouldn't be using the word queer for things like that. I got some hate on a fan fiction I wrote uh, in 2014, 15. I don't remember what year it was. Um, about, you know, stealing the term queer from the actual queer oh. people or this or that. Or, like, I don't no, even know. If, if a bisexual <laughs> is in a relationship with someone of the opposite gender, that's still a queer relationship because there's a queer person in it. Like, yeah, it is. Hi, I'm proof of that. I really like that that way of letting, you know, not calling a male-female romance het just because it's a guy and a girl, because that erases the bisexual people that might be in the relationship. I prefer other... But, of course, fandom is a little limited in that regard. But um, It is, but it's still hurtful to us when, again, we're in a relationship and we're automatically identified as, oh, you're a girl and therefore he's a guy and therefore this is that. Again, it's very limiting, and it is hurtful in its own way. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I definitely think this is all kind of tied together and kind of why we wanted to do queer platonic relationships and bro-TPs or bromance-type relationships in the same episode, because there's so many overlapping parallels of how it all works out. Like, Yeah, especially you know I mean? in, a, in a fandom space, in a fan fiction, like fan works. Um, and headcanons because then they really become almost indistinguishable. Like if you're reading, you could read a, a work that's like, oh, it's like tagged romance or bro TP and the relationship displayed will be like, like, well, gosh, this is exactly what I picture a queer platonic relationship looks like. Um, and if you're reading something tagged queer platonic, you're like, man, the bromance vibes are like really strong in this. I just realized that I had, that I, I brought up toxic masculinity for the second time, and then I still didn't get into that a bit, because we got a little bit distracted talking about gender. But the reason why, or one of the reasons why bromance, you know, originated as a term for close friendship between two men is because of the really homophobic culture that we exist in that pushes towards toxic masculinity. I don't think we have time for another word definition to really get into what, like, break down what toxic masculinity is. Yeah, I mean, bromance really came around as a term to kind of deflect the whole actuality of men forming really close relationships with other men because, again, due to this whole culture of homophobia to be really close friends in the same way that you see like some females being friends was considered as this really effeminate thing, which related to being gay, which again, in homophobic culture meant that it wasn't really a thing men did. Like 
having a guy friend was like a guy you knew at work or like you went out and got a beer with. Like you didn't go get brunch with them. You didn't have like talks about your feelings or anything. Right. Talk talking about your feelings is seen as girly or gay, and so any relationship that's platonic but between men um that is talking about your feelings as an example is being perceived as like borderline gay or something which is why they add the word romance into it kind of even when it's just a joke and they know it's not a romance and then it gets murky but yeah i don't i don't know what i think what do you guys think no that's basically it i think it's worth mentioning this is some i mean it's not a uniquely american thing but we are coming from this uh, at this from an American perspective. I remember seeing a t- uh, post on Tumblr that was sort of uh, a more international look at, and they were really shocked at how little American men and young men could could touch each other. Like, the, the permissible amount of touching is so much lower in the U.S. than in some other countries, where you can throw a casual arm or a hug or a kiss on the cheek with your guy friends. Yeah, no, that's very valid and, yeah. and relevant. It's uh, it's important. For the love of God, let men hug. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah, our our American culture is a lot uh a lot more on the side of the no one hugs and whatnot, especially not men, than a lot of other yeah. cultures. And it really messes our boys up. Uh one of the comments that really stuck with me was the observation that if you're the only person it's okay for your boyfriend to touch, holy does it change the game. Um, and that this kind of contributes to some of like the, the problems we see in heterosexual relationships um, and sort of possessiveness that a lot of guys have towards their girlfriend in that, like, like, like I mentioned earlier, humans are inherently social animals. And so like social interaction is a requirement for our well-being uh, and part of that is like positive touch. And I know there's touch averse people out there and I don't want to throw you under the bus, but that's, don't want to derail this either. So like some amount of, of human touch, like being touch starved is a, is a serious thing. And so the, the idea of a bromance is making it a little bit more permissible for guys to have close just being able to to hug and touch and have close friendship and it's specific to guys because like kk mentioned it's okay for girls to have it like that's expected like i even think of the term girlfriend and how confusing it was for me to hear people using it in a not gay way you know like i there's in a platonic yeah, like way. someone who i knew was straight or you know because she was married would talk about things she did with her girlfriend yeah. and i was like it puzzled me for the longest time until I figured out that they were just using girlfriend to mean close friend who's a girl. Because my default state is like, you mean the girl you're dating, right? One of the interesting things about that platonic usage of girlfriend is that they basically are saying, this is a different category of friendship to me. I conceptualize my friends who are girlfriends as different than my friends. Like they have their own categorization system in their head almost these people that use the word like that, I feel yeah. like. Don't you think? Yeah, it's... Well, I mean, that makes sense. I mean, lots of people have friends that are, like... They're friends, like, you, they're people you know, but you may not hang out. And then girlfriend, you know, again, would be, like, the one you hang out with on weekends. So I guess that makes sense to me. 
Yeah, but no, I think this is all um, very interesting. And I also kind of identified as touch averse for a while. And now I think I'm, I'm really more like touch indifferent a lot more than a lot of people. Um, so we can just discuss that in a later episode. I totally appreciate that point of view of it too, because I know touch, uh, you know, skin hunger and all that stuff is a thing for most human beings. And it's a really complicated thing to unpack for when uh, can I really just say how creepy it is to hear someone say the words skin hunger it's a thing it's a term I'll I'll link to something here it is but I'm sorry can we please discuss how weird that turn of phrase is it has nothing to do with cannibalism okay Okay, I appreciate where you're coming from but I have a dog (laughs) who just likes to lick any exposed skin like, she will continuously lick your foot for 20 minutes. I have clocked her. Sometimes she gets angry if you wear socks, and she'll, like, scratch at your socks and be like, yeah, she's barked at me for wearing pants, because how dare I cover up all that delicious flesh that she wants to lick. So I am, like, really indifferent hilarious. to any kind of weird usage of the word skin hunger. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's fair. I'm sorry. I just heard it, and my brain was like, well, I'm sorry. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but no, I, 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 uh, I think it's, um, it's an interesting terminology. It's, it's basically about, um, a lot of times, you know, English speaking society, there's analogies to hunger when it comes to sex drive. This is a different drive. It's touch drive. It's contact that's platonic. And they're using it as a metaphor for having a strong, innate craving to touch as opposed to to eat food. It's not about actually wanting to eat the skin. Yeah, no, the the whole... Yes. No, and I figured that. I just wanted to point out how weird it sounds. <laughs> yeah, so skin hunger uh, actually has been, like, something that's been studied in the lab. I think the, the quintessential experiment there was, like, the uh, some of the most famous experiments uh, were, like, decades ago, and pretty controversial, like, even at the time. I think it was, like, in the 1950s. We're learning so much today. You wouldn't be able to conduct this experiment today because of, like, ethics reasons. But what they found was, like, uh, there was this guy who was doing experiments with uh, rhesus monkeys, and there were sort of two different surrogate mothers that the monkeys would be like, kind of forcibly imprinted on. Uh, one was like the cloth mother, which was uh, like a wireframe kind of puppet, but covered with soft cloth. And the other was just like a wire mother, which was just like a wireframe uh, mother monkey. Actually, I think I have heard about this. And so he would do studies and found that like the monkeys that you know, the, the wire mother would give them food, but the cloth mother would like, like have nothing to offer them, no sustenance. They would still prefer the cloth mother. Like they'd go to the wire mother to eat, but then they cuddle with the cloth and all these other things. And then he did things where it was like just cloth. Like they only had one mother and it was like wire mother monkey, wire monkey mother. <laughs> Usually called like the wire mother. And the other one was just cloth mother. Um, and the wire ones, they, those monkeys, like, had almost constant diarrhea, like, they were just under so much stress, uh, even though, like, their, all their needs were technically being met, because they had food, they had water, they had a place to sleep, but one of them had a wire mother, and they did not do as well. Very interesting, yeah. So, um, there are a couple fandom things I wanted to bring up that have to do with BroTPs and QPRs. Um, one of the things is that a lot of people do see them as in between friendship and romance. So, um, the tagging systems that we talked about at great length when it comes to 
uh, last episode with Jen and whatnot. Oh, yes. It's still relevant because Queer Platonic is in the in-between of Jen and not Jen. Oh, great. Jen was already confusing enough. And now we've got the whole idea of people who are trying to blur the lines on purpose with the relationship they're writing their fanfiction about. Now what do we do? So it, it all depends on kind of like which direction you lean. Like if you were thinking of this as, well, this is just as, um, just as shippy in my head as if it was a romance. I want to tag it like it's a ship kind of, that might be one way to conceptualize it in your head. And then there's the people who will be like, I, the fact that it's platonic is the most important aspect and the whole point. The whole point is that they're not romantic. So I'm going to tag it as such. And so not, there is not one general consensus in all of fandom. It probably varies by specific fandom you're in, like the TV show, book series, movie, whatever, you know, like different people probably have like start trends in their own fandoms. And then if there are popular queer platonic relationships to write about or bro, bro TPs that sort of are borderline queer platonic, then people kind of follow what other people are doing a lot of the time. Not entirely, but that tends to be part of how that could work. But there's no, like, rule. Basically, the whole point is you're not doing it wrong. <laughs> Whatever you decide is what, what makes sense. That's kind of the beauty of it, is you can do what you want. But it makes it hard for people to search properly for what they're looking for, which is why Ark of Verona is cool. And even fanfiction.net where you can search words, because you can actually search words like queer platonic or QPR if you're looking for that in particular. And the way the rest of it's tagged becomes irrelevant, because now we have a word to describe exactly what we're trying to find. You know what I mean? Does that make some sense? I think so. Yeah, that makes sense. (laughs) It's a little bit lengthy, but it made sense. It got there. (laughs) I'm rambly as a person. That's okay. Um, I go on full-on rants about nerdy stuff all the time. <laughs> you can, like, my whole family has probably entire rants themselves about, like, this one time, KK went in this entire thing about Labyrinth. Right. <laughs> um, another thing I thought we might have more time to talk about in this episode, but we probably don't, is basically the um, beginning of the term shipper... And the opposing team, the No Romos, in the X-Files fandom. And how basically people were arguing about Mulder and Scully and whether they were, like, classically, traditionally going to become a romantic relationship and already had all those feelings all along. And clearly you could tell by the eye contact and this and that in the show versus the people arguing that all of this was sure deep and intimate, but in a platonic way. Yeah, I remember that that was a really good blog post. I do think we're out yeah, of time, but... That. I can I can link to this blog post in our, you know... We definitely should. Yeah, I mean, we can link to it, and but then I, I think we should, like, sort of talk about that, because that's, that's related to, like, how people headcanon things as queer platonic or romantic or shipping, but I think it is a bigger topic that we don't have time for right now. Well, because if... I mean, I would raise it as, like, oh, are they, you know... uh of male female bromance um because i would categorize it that way but but no like the idea of unresolved sexual tension like because that's something like as an ace that i would like to talk a bit about and like no we're not talking Mm. about it now i think this is um something very relevant to the queer platonic discussion especially the way this blogger talks about it um because it's basically predates you know having terminology for it but is 
some of the things that kind of prove that this has been a thing people have been trying to talk about for longer than we have the words for it. Um, It really has been a long, long road. In 1999, they didn't have words like queer platonic. And I thought it was interesting how Cordic talked about how, you know, not being unhappy is different than being happy and the whole negative versus positive. There, There was this idea of no Romo trying to fight against, well, no, it's not romantic. And they didn't use the word platonic for Mulder and Scully. But there's this a recent blog post that was written a couple months ago um, by Blue Ice Tea, who was explaining how the no Romos weren't just fighting against something, they were fighting for something. And essentially, they were fighting for the idea that it's possible for a man and a woman who are, a st- neither one of them are gay, to still have a deep platonic relationship that remains platonic. And that's basically the queer platonic, before they had words for it, um, kind of dynamic that this, you know, deep partnership on a TV series that lasted many years, um, you know, kind of was. So it's just an interesting thing. I don't know. I, I thought I thought we would have more time to talk about this episode, but I just wanted to at least bring it up in this episode as something that, you know, crossed my mind. And I can link to this blog post so you can read yeah. more and maybe... Maybe get your own thoughts on it. It's definitely worth a read, uh, especially for a little slice of fandom history. I would like to clarify, like, when I made the comparison between not unhappy and happy, uh, my point wasn't even so much about having, like, negative versus positive, but just that... A double negative isn't necessarily uh, synonymous with its positive. Right. Yeah, that to say something is platonic is, you know, it it is not synonymous with not romantic was the the core point. But but the the symbolism of not it's having true. a negative in front of it uh, is is not lost on me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think we could finish up with something else about QPRs and bro TPs and fandom from your point of view, since I talked about some other stuff. Uh-huh. Um, is no, there anything in particular that you have in mind? I, I would just say, you know, and it's not really much of a topic, but man, do I really love a good bro TP. Especially now, because I used to read more shipping fix, I guess. You know, things come and go in phases. Um, and right now, it's just kind of like, I moved away from that, and I was, like, seeking out genfic, and mm-hmm. now I'm kind of on the sort of moving on from even genfic and saying, like, okay, gen is great. I love gen. Gen is my jam. Um, but now I'm seeking out more of, like, those bro TPs, those QPRs. Like, those are the things that I'm seeking out, and they're such an important uh, addition to fandom, and they're they're just, just much love. Much love for all the bro TPs out there. <laughs> Yes, because yes. they really are just very refreshing to read. Because again, you kind of get into patterns of like, you read a bunch of this stuff, you read a bunch of that stuff. And I gotta say, I bounce to BroTP stuff all the time. Just whenever I'm like, I want something that's like nice. Not too much angst. Some fluff. It's usually a BroTP thing. And it makes me happy. Yeah. I also, um, I mean, I love in canon when a bro-TP-type relationship is deep enough that they have, like, friend breakups and friend drama, and it's not necessarily all the fluff. But I always, I've always, i always enjoyed that, even before I, like, considered it a bro-TP in my head or 
queer platonic potential or whatever. And it's definitely something I gravitate towards in some sense, I think. Also, again, it's super nice when you're a person who's like, I like friendship in all my relationships. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. We are here for this quality content. And unfortunately, or I mean, for better or for worse, all three of us hosts on this uh, podcast kind of lean that way, right? We were very yeah, much, a little bit, li- very much uh, friendships, everything, and it's hard for us. We're not, we're none of us are very much like purely allo romantic because I think I don't know how you identify KK, but if you're if you're demisexual and demi romantic, if you feel like it's it's not like a romantic crush without sexual attraction. It's just a friendship crush, a squish, uh, you know, until you have more feelings Then it, then you might be on the other side of things. I don't know where you fall in all that. And it's not that easy for any of us to define our feelings anyway. It's not. And admittedly, I have not, I have not totally explored like the romanticism bit. Uh, admittedly from what I have noticed in myself, it seems fairly normal. So I can't really say. You mean aloe? Yeah. It seems pretty much on the aloe scale. Although I will say this. I now love the word squish. <laughs> and I'm going to use that. Right. Friendship crushes are squishes in the aromantic terminology glossaries this is, this is, out this there. This is now my new favorite thing. <laughs> this is right up there with life's um, bread. Yeah, yeah. I think one of the things, even if you're aloromantic, asexual, if um, in general, people, I'm talking to the listeners out there, um, if if you don't really, you know, feel the, the sexual attraction alongside your romantic attraction the way most allo people do, then the friendship type stories in fan fiction often are just more relatable, period, than a lot of the romantic stories. So yes. I think it's it's just very relatable for aces generally, and that's sort of why it's so relevant to our podcast. <laughs> They're a nice, cozy place for us. We like it there. So do we want to transition into Rex? Yeah, let's do that. Awesome. Go for it, Cordic. Okay, so mine uh, is titled Platonic is the Hardest Word. It is by TARDIS is the Only Way to Travel. It's part of their series on asexuality fix. Like, they've written more than just this one and a couple of other fandoms. And it is specifically about, like, the queer platonic relationship between Clint Barton and Natasha Romanov. Uh, And they move into Avengers Towers with the other Avengers, but then everybody assumes that they're banging, and they're just like, why is it so hard to understand that our relationship isn't like that. And that's the story. I approve this. How many words was it this time? It was only 1,200. <laughs> All right. I wrecked a short one this time. Fair enough. Um, so, KK, what's your wreck? So, admittedly, so I went adventuring to find a new one because I was looking through the ones that I have been reading, and a lot of them were super short. <laughs> so I want to try and find like a longer one that had a few more words to it, maybe like a thousand or so. And I <laughs> found this one that is it kind of combines the Yuri on Ice fandom as well as the Harry Potter one. Ooh. Because it throws all the Yuri on Ice characters into Hogwarts. Fun combination. It looks like it is. So I 
powered through it a little while ago, and it does not seem to be complete, um, but it currently has 81,000 words. Actually, over that. Impressive. Yes, that is a lot of words. Uh, it's got several like different like little bits to work and everything like that, and it's called Exmamis, and that's spelled E-X-P-O-M-I-S-E. And it was written by Thank You For Existing on AO3. And it basically is, it's the characters, like, going through Hogwarts from, like, year one. So it's going, like, by year by year. And I've been having a nice time with it because a lot of it is from uh, the character Yuri's point of view and, like, his friendship with Pitchett and just growing friendship with Victor and, of course, the obvious how that's going to grow into all of that romantic mess, but at the moment, it's like a lot of friendship, and it makes me happy. <laughs> okay. I should warn, there is an angst tag on it, <laughs> so that may be coming, and... <laughs> Fair enough. And then I'm going to lose my fluff, and it's going to be a slightly sad. <laughs> but I'm still going to read it. Yeah, yeah. Seems fun. And what about definitely you, make, make me interested in checking out the Yuri on Ice fandom one of these years when I have time. Um, <laughs> no, you're right to wait right now because apparently there's an impending explosion coming. Um, <laughs> so this Yuri on Ice movie is in production called Ice Adolescence, and apparently news about it is coming, or at least that's what I've been seeing posts about. Right. So there's going to be an right. explosion soon, so I recommend waiting until after that's done. Yeah. It's going to be more madness. Okay. So I want to do something different for my rec this time, but I wasn't sure how you guys would feel about it. Thought I'd spring it on you on the air and see what you thought. Go um, for it. <laughs> so I decided to wreck a fan video instead of a fan fiction story. Um, although I found like one and a half really good contenders for fan fictions that would fit with the same pairing, but then there's more fan videos that I prefer for this. So, um, Boy Meets World fandom. Very classic bromance. On the bromance page on, like, Wikipedia, it's, like, the second listed one after I Love You Man, <laughs> you know, is, like, the most classic bromance ever. Corey and Sean. And the show aired from 1993 to 2000, so it was kind of predating words like bromance and definitely predating words like queer platonic, but they were so queer platonic. And there's, like, one fan fiction on Archive of Our Own that mentions, like, they're basically queer platonic. Most people writing fan fiction about them are shipping them, which is a very common male-male-gen friendships in canon become shipped in, you know, fandom. But the fan, the fan videos have to take the clips that exist. And so you can really capture how deep their bromance is, you know, how deep their their platonic friendship is and all these canon moments that are just so wonderfully sweet and platonic. The one I decided to wreck, although there's like a toss up between like 10 good videos, um, is Corey and Sean, You Are Always Gold to Me, made by Lady Magic. Magic has three C's at the end. You can just uh, search Corey Sean, You Were Always Gold to Me on YouTube, and it'll come up as the first one. It has a nice thumbnail, too, with a bunch of different images of them um, in one in one picture. But yeah, it's a seven-minute video. I don't love the choice they made for how it ends, because it kind of implies their friendship's over as soon as Corey gets married um, to his girlfriend um, or fiancé or whatever. Um, but 
It's stupid. Um, obviously, the friendship wasn't over then. And as Girl Meets World, the sequel series uh, reveals they were still, you know, the best of friends, even after he is married for forever. So obviously, their romance can withstand someone getting married. Um, it's just too strong for that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, do you guys have any <laughs> thoughts? That sounds really cute, honestly. Yeah. I'll embed the video, I think. I think I know how to do that on Archive of Our Own. Um, I'll at the very least link it, and <laughs> you can uh, see my wreck that way. Cool. Yes, so you can either go hunt it down on the internet, or you can just look up the link where we posted it. Yeah, so those are our wrecks. Um, this was an exciting episode, a bit long. I don't want to cut out much of it, but we'll see. Um, <laughs> I feel good about um, this one. I think we we really hit some high points. We did, yes, but I do think... That we probably have to do some editing here and there. <laughs> oh, of course. All right. So we've been getting a little bit more interaction on our Twitter account. Yay! We're on Twitter at AceTerpreTweets because AceTerpretations is too long to be a username on Twitter. Um, so follow us at AceTerpreTweets and tweet us. We get really excited when you do that. Um, and also email us at AceTerpretations at gmail.com. Again, we love getting your questions. We love hearing from you guys. We really, really do. I think our next episode is going to be Intersectionality Part 1, Gender Roles. Woo! We've decided that naturally flowed out of this topic. So we have been meaning to talk about intersectionality for a while. It's kind of too big of a topic to cover in just one episode. So Hence the Part 1. This will be the start. <laughs> Um, if you have any questions, concerns, corrections, whatever, we know we've talked about lots of terminology, lots of, we kind of jump all over the place. We're happy to, you know, email you, tweet you, etc. if you just, you know, reach out to us. So yeah, I think that's a wrap. This is Love the Heavens, signing off. Until next time, this is Quartic, signing off. This is KK, going to get some sleep. sleep.